Good morning. Um, if we've not met, hi, I'm Naomi. I'm on the staff team here at Christchurch. And um, Fern, thank you for that reading. What an incredible account of what must have been a really, really memorable moment um, for all those who were there, for Jesus himself, for the woman who anointed him, and for all those guests who were there. An account of what you might call extravagant worship. Um, worship, of course, not being simply our singing of worship songs, though we love to do that, but anything we do that shows God his worth, that is worship. Anything we do that says, God, you are worthy of our all. What this woman did is extravagant. There's nothing about this that was half-hearted, is there? She absolutely gave her all. And so I guess the question for us this morning is, how can I use my everyday life to extravagantly worship Jesus. You know, because we gather when we come to church on a Sunday and we love it, we love to gather together with others who love Jesus and worship him and, and we love that and there's something very special about that. But just as important is when we scatter throughout the week to our various places, how we worship him wholeheartedly through the way we live our lives. So three things this morning that I think we could learn from this passage about extravagant worship. Firstly, extravagant worship is always a response. So the setting here is that Jesus has been invited to this Pharisee's house and he's accepted. He said, yes, I'll come and he eats with him. And we're told later in the passage that there were other guests there too. Um, Let's just remind ourselves that the name Pharisee means separated ones. There are about 6,000 of them scattered all over Palestine. Um, They were teachers in synagogues. They were sort of the religious example, if you like, in the eyes of everyone else. Um, And they were self-appointed guardians of the law. So it might actually be that the Pharisee had invited Jesus to his house to catch him out rather than to learn from Jesus. And then we're told that this woman arrives, a woman who had lived a sinful life. And by that, we're we're meant to understand that she was a prostitute. And she must have heard Jesus preach and in repentance determined to lead a new life. She'd responded in her heart to Jesus' message as he'd been preaching as he was traveling around. And she was so overwhelmed with gratitude so overcome that there might actually be a welcome for her, that there might actually be a a forever fresh start, once and for all, I could start all over again. And she was just so grateful that her response was this extravagant display of gratitude and love for Jesus in the understanding that she could be forgiven. She has this long-necked bottle of perfumed ointment, and she stands behind Jesus um, at his feet, so he would have been kind of reclining on a couch with his feet away from the table, and she stands at his feet. And um, she pours this perfume on his feet. We don't know. I mean, maybe she brought this perfumed ointment to anoint his head. It might have been more standard, but in the moment, she was so overwhelmed, and her tears are falling on his feet, and she's wiping them with her hair, and she anoints his feet with this perfume. And my guess is that this woman probably didn't have her life all in order yet. You know, she didn't have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted and everything lined up. She didn't. She simply knew she wanted to thank Jesus. 
I heard it said, if the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. We'd do well to say more thank you prayers, wouldn't we? Our worship of Jesus, whether it be in times of sung worship or how we display our love for him through the week in our homes and our workplaces, is only ever a response to what he has first done for us. If you hear this this morning and think, well, I don't really know how to start, how do I extravagantly worship God? Maybe start by thinking of one thing that you feel God has done for you, one thing that he's changed in your life. And just start by saying a simple thank you prayer for that. It's usually a really good place to start. John writes in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. Whatever we do for God is only ever a response to what he's first done for us. And we get that in everyday life, don't we? You know, if someone does something kind for you, then you want to say thank you for, to them. If they do something really big and really lovely for you, then you might even go so far as to write a thank you card or want to do something back for them. We get that. Um, I remember a time of being really, really grateful. This was a few years ago now. And um, I was on the M4 motorway, travelling east back to London. And, um, and it was a Friday night, and it was late and it was dark, and I just wanted to get home. And then a sign came up on the side of the road, and it said, M4 closed. And I thought, well, that can't be right, because I'm on the M4, so I carried on driving for about 30 seconds um, until we were all stationary, along with all the other people who hadn't believed the sign either. And it was proper, you know, we were there for ages. It was turn your engine off. People were getting out their cars, wandering around, all that sort of thing. So I did whatever I could do to pass the time. I ate some snacks. I had a drink in the car, looked around. And as time went on, I started to need the toilet. It would have been easier if I was a guy, but I wasn't. Well, I'm not. Um, so, clever me, I looked around. And on the inside lane, there was a coach. And it looked like a really nice coach. And I thought, hmm, nice coaches sometimes have toilets on them. So I thought, come on, I got all my courage together, left my car, knocked on the driver's window. I said, oh, hi, excuse me. Any chance I could come and use the toilet on your coach? And he said, oh, hang on, I'll ask. Who's he asking? So we asked someone else, gets permission, and I'm allowed on the coach to use the toilet. Brilliant. And of course, you know sometimes how what comes into your head just comes out of your mouth. So I get on the front of the coach, and I said, I said, oh, it's a coach full of guys, which it was. It was like all fine young men. Um, so <laughs> I toddled to the back of the coach, find the toilet, use the loo, come back, and I spoke to the guy in charge. I was like, thank you so much, thank you so much, that was amazing, I feel so much better, thank you, thank you, thank you, amazing. And, and who are you, what's the, what's the trip, you know, where are you going, sort of thing. And he said, well, I'm a football manager, this is a football team, we're Wigan Athletic, this is our team coach, and we're on our way to play Reading tomorrow in the championship. I said, oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, the only thing I can think of to thank you enough is to be a Wigan Athletic supporter for the rest of my days. Um, and so I declared that I would support them. We were actually promoted the next season. I'm sure it was down to me. But I was so... I was so very grateful and relieved to be able to use their coach that I just wanted to pledge my allegiance. And I just think, how much more has Jesus done for us? How much more has he done for us? 
that we would want to say thank you to him, that we would find a, want to find a way of pledging our allegiance to him, of our life being different now because of what he's done. His, his love, his redemption, his rescue of us, it, it demands a response. It invites a response from us. You know, we might not be able to identify with the particular sin of the woman in this story, but we have all got our stuff, haven't we? Let's be honest. Jesus is our rescuer as much as he was hers. He's had to be our redeemer as much as he had to be hers. We've known his freedom as much as she had, and his rescue, his redemption, his freedom. It invites a response from us. Paul writes in Romans 12, when I urge you, in view of God's mercy, you know, in view of all he's done for you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Let's offer our bodies, our lives, our minutes, our days to him. That is our way of worshipping him, giving him our all. So how could I respond to him in an appropriate way for what he's done for me? For some of us, that might look like giving God the courtesy of being listened to. So we actually read his word and we listen to him in prayer. For others of us, that might mean working with a fresh integrity in our work. Or for others... It might be giving our time or our money as our thank offering to him. Extravagant worship is always a response. It starts with him. How will we respond? Secondly, extravagant worship is joining in with heaven. So you'll have heard this. The chief end of man is to worship God and glorify him forever. It's from a set of principles. We call them the the Westminster Catechism. It was written in the 1600s. In other words, our chief end, they came to the conclusion, our main reason for existence is to worship God. And I agree with them wholeheartedly. We will all do various things with our lives. Our Monday to Fridays look very different to each other. But big picture-wise, we are here. The reason for us being here is to worship and glorify God. And the book of Revelation gives us the most gorgeous glimpse into what goes on all the time. And the main thing I grasp when I read Revelation is, wow, God is being worshipped. God is being thanked. God is being adored all the time. What am I doing faffing around with these little things in my life that I'm worrying about? I want to join in with that. That's what, that's what brings meaning to my life. That's what brings me home. That's what my life is about, to worship him and join in with that. Um, just a couple of snippets. Let's dive in. Revelation 4, from verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship him. He receives this all the time. This is what God is worthy of all the time, and it's what we'll be doing in heaven, and I don't want to wait till then, but I know some of you will sit there and think, yes, Naomi, but I've got a job to do. 
or there's things on my to-do list, or I've got children to feed, or whatever. And I totally get that. We can't all be falling at the feet of Jesus, worshipping him all the time like that right now, because your boss is going to have something to say if you don't turn up to work tomorrow. Or your kids are going to complain if they don't get fed. So I think being human as a follower of Jesus is about finding a way to show God is worthy in the way we do the things we have to do. So how can you be an employee or an employer in such a way that shows God he is worthy? How can you interact with your kids this week in such a way that shows you are living 100% for Jesus? How can you go through the grief or the trouble you're facing this week in a way that says to God, you are my everything? Because small act of obedience, by small act of obedience in my workplace, I am adding to heaven's song of adoration to Jesus. Decision by decision made to honor him in my family situation, I am joining in with the angels and the elders, showing him that he is worthy of my all. One day at a time, choosing to carve out time to read the Bible and to pray, I am playing my part in God receiving all that he is worthy of. We can do this with our whole lives. I came across a really helpful article. Um, It's by a guy called John Piper, and it's about how to glorify God at work. So this might not necessarily apply to um, all of us, but we all work in um, one way or another. And for some of us, this might be crucial. So just some bullet points, ways to glorify God through your work. One, dependence. Go to work utterly dependent on God. Without him, you can do nothing, let alone be spiritually, spiritually influential. Get up in the morning and let God know you need him. Ask for help. Two, integrity. Be meticulously honest and trustworthy on the job. More people rob their employers by being slackers than by stealing their petty cash, he says. Three, skill. Get good at what you do. Treasure the gifts God has given you and be a good steward of those skills. Four, corporate shaping. As you have opportunity, shape the ethos of the workplace so that structures and policies and expectations and aims move towards accordance with Jesus. Five, impact. Aim to help your place of work have an impact that is life-enhancing, not soul-destroying. Six, communication. Workplaces are webs of relationships. Weave your Christian worldview into the normal communications of life. Seven, love. Serve others. Be known as the one who cares. Not just about the light-hearted weekend tales, but the burdens of heavy and painful Monday mornings. Love your workmates and point them to the great burden-bearer. Eight, money. Work is where you make money. It's all God's, not yours. Turn your earning into the overflow of generosity in how you steward God's money. And nine, thanks. Be a thankful person at work. Don't be among the complainers. So by the way we work, by the way we relate to others, by the way we live in our neighborhoods, we can give God glory, and in doing so, we can add to heaven's constant song of worship and adoration. Let's give our lives to it. It's the reason for our existence. Don't wait for a Sunday morning to do it. Let's do it all week in the way we live. 
And finally, extravagant worship is not conscious of others around. I often think that our our offerings to Jesus must be so much more precious to him when it's sort of despite something. You know, so if we choose to worship God, even when we're in a really difficult situation, for example, I think what a blessing that must be to God's heart. And this is another one of those. This is choosing to worship him with my all, regardless of who's around or what they might think. This woman who anointed Jesus did this in someone else's house with other people watching on, and she knew full well that they would know her reputation and they would have something to say about what she was doing, but she chose to do it anyway. Simon, the Pharisee whose house it was, sees what's going on, and we're told that he said to himself, well, actually, he clearly said it loud enough for Jesus to hear, because Jesus then responds. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So he puts himself in the place of being righteous and declares that this woman is in the wrong. And then Jesus does such a beautiful thing, as he always does. He gives this woman the dignity of not responding specifically about her. Instead, he addresses the issue that Simon's raised with a story. And he tells this story of the moneylender and two people who own money. They're both cancelled. Which one will love the, the moneylender more? And Simon says, the one who owed him more. Jesus says, yes, you're right. And Jesus now turns a spotlight on all the ways that this woman has been a blessing to him compared to what Simon has done. Jesus says Simon didn't give him water to wash his feet from the dust outside. Simon didn't greet him with a kiss to welcome him. He didn't anoint his head with oil, which which might have been expected. The woman, on the other hand, Jesus praises She wet my feet, not just washing them from the dust, she wet them with her tears. This has come from her heart. She's not stopped kissing my feet. She's poured perfume on them. Jesus says this is a sign of her loving Jesus a lot because her many sins have been forgiven. And he says, he who's been forgiven little loves little and leaves Simon to work out how it applies to him. And then Jesus, having given this explanation to the rest of those gathered there, now, only now, does he turn to address the woman directly? And he says three life-giving things. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How beautiful. Her love and her thankfulness to Jesus meant that her need to show her devotion to him far outweighed caring what anyone else might think or say about what she was doing. How precious must that have been to Jesus? I just wonder, could our devotion to Jesus learn something from this woman about not caring what other people think but truly giving Jesus all that he is worthy of. You know, that can apply to us in church when we're singing our worship to Jesus, and it can apply to our our day-to-day settings, can't it? You know, Colossians 3, whatever you do, 
Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Do, do this stuff before God, not, not for other people. I'm not saying that we should all be more, you know, um, demonstrably outward and all that and extravagant in our, our worship, our some worship of Jesus for the sake of it. Of course I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you feel in your heart that you want to give your all to Jesus and you want to do this, well, don't let it be the thought of other people around you and what they're going to think. Stop you. This is far too important. This is given the God of the whole universe who's redeemed you and forgiven you and welcomed you home and given you a place in heaven forever. This is him you're standing in front of. Let's tell him we love what he's done for us. This is too important. Or if we determine to live for Jesus in a particular way in our week coming up, you know, something at work or something in our family or something in our neighbourhoods, don't be put off by what someone else might think. What does that other person on the desk over there think? Forget it. What does God Almighty think? He loves it. He loves to hear from you and he loves to welcome you. He loves to be blessed by you and receive your worship and your praise. I love the writer Oz Guinness who wrote quite simply, I live before the audience of one. Before others, I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. Let's live for the audience of one. I heard a great story that I love um, about a student, a college student, who was playing American football. And um, every day, he turned up to practice with an older gentleman. And he'd play his heart out, this student. But every time it came to a big, a big game, the coach would say, I'm not going to play you because you're just too small. And every day he'd come and he'd really try and work hard and he'd really try and work hard. And then it got to the day of the game with their biggest rival. And this student said to his coach, you have got to play me today. And the coach said, listen, you know the deal. I know you put your all into it, but you're just too small. And, um, and the student didn't give up that day. He said, no, no, today you absolutely have to play me. And he said, if I'm rubbish, take me off after five minutes, that's fine, just let me on the pitch. And to everyone's surprise, the coach let him play. And he didn't have to pull him off after five minutes, didn't have to take him off the pitch after ten minutes. He played the whole game, and he played immensely. And at the end of the game, all his teammates congratulated him for the best game ever. The coach was amazed at this performance, and he asked the student, where did that performance come from? And he said, well, the guy that I came with to practice every day was, um, was my dad, and he was blind, and he died last night. And so today was going to be the first day that he would ever see me play. He played the game of his life because he vividly imagined playing before the face of his father in heaven. And we're called, aren't we? We're called to live what they call coram Deo, before the face of God. Let's do it for him. Let's not worry about anyone else around. Worship is worship, but extravagant worship. Heartfelt worship, 100% all out for Jesus worship. It's living every day from the moment I get up till the moment I go to bed before him, for his glory, for what he thinks of what I'm doing. 
Let it be that we live for an audience of one before the face of God. Let's pray. Let's just take a little moment to think how we might want to respond. You know, we've said it's, a, it's always a response to what he's done for us first. How will we respond to what he's done? Father God, thank you so much for this account. Such a wonderful example to us of being able to bless Jesus, to be a blessing to him, to make him happy, to to respond to all that he's done for us. And right now in this moment, Lord, I I think I speak for so many of us here. We want to do that with our lives. And so I want to pray for all of us that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit now so that when we go out from here and we live the rest of our Sunday in our home situation and we live the rest of this week in our work situation in our neighborhood, in our friendship groups, in our family dynamics, that we would be able to make good choices that please you. And we pray that you would come by your spirit and those little acts of obedience, those little things we do, having, having integrity at work, or checking on my elderly neighbor, or whatever else it is, those things we do, would you come by your spirit and would you make them an offering to Jesus? Would these things this week that we do for you, Lord, would they be the perfumed ointment? Would they be the tears? Would they be the hair? We want to give you our all and live our lives to worship you. Would you help us to do that by the power of your spirit this week, we pray. We commit ourselves to it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.